1: This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Hello. Hello. Got a bone to pick with you? No. Yeah. Not with me. With you, Ed, I'm sorry. So last week's episode Reasons to be Icelandic. Great episode. Great episode, great response. Yeah. We said in advance we were going to put out a video of you and I luxuriating in a geothermal hot pool to promote the episode. Yeah. And you suppressed the tape. My staff, I think. You've suppressed it. Too much chest hair. <laughs> we had a very clear rule that there were no nipples. I made sure to keep my nipples beneath the water's surface. You need to have a word with Lindsay in my office. She Could vetoed we, it. Is, is the note, I mean, what is it? Is it your chest hair that's the problem? Could we not pixelate your chest hair? I think it was generally thought to be sort of... Is, is it the case that the the country is falling to pieces? And having a video of you, um, perhaps, <laughs> in the bath with me, perhaps, perhaps isn't
3: it's, it's it's not quite the right it's note those, that you want to strike. It's those political insights that you get the big bucks for. I think. <laughs> okay, I think maybe I as a Christmas present.
2: I understand. Well, you said that about the trampoline video, and we've never
3: seen that. Do you think yet? we should release a trampoline video? <laughs> we, we should release a compilation. Yeah, only if you tell me the end of the Leisure Centre story. Well, as I've said, well, I think when, that would be disappointing when the, compared you know, to the
2: steam bath and the. Oh, yeah, the steam bath. I mean, it's really worth seeing. Yeah. I've seen these videos and they're really something. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I think it could end up taking on myth, mythical status like true. Donald Trump's piss tape. I mean, not saying that there was any of that going on in the, in the <laughs> pool, at least not on my part. No, me neither. So if if there was enough of a head of steam behind it like, a, uh, pardon oh, the bo- boom, boom. if if there was enough public demand would would you consider at a point when things are perhaps a little less turbulent in the news releasing the video of you and I in the hot hot spa no <laughs> <laughs> then i think we need to uh, we we need some kind of inquiry you've got no credible we, threat now, we, have no, you? well i i think I've it, called if, your bluff we we could get some kind of judgement to to force you to release it what, a sort of subpoena get you subpoenaed subpoena- yes
3: Well, what about the us congress
2: yeah i mean i'm i'm willing to take it all the way you think you might to yes, yes.
3: <laughs> i think they might be busy as well
2: well, I'm hoping that if the reasons to be a cheerful audience can get behind this, and you know, we have a lot of, uh, I think we have a lot of things think, on the podcast which people would want to demagog- get behind.
3: Demagogery does not does not see. It's you. not becoming. It's not becoming. Playing to the crowd. Demagogery is not is is unbecoming. I'm going to leak it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually,
2: I can't leak it because it's on your phone, not mine. Yeah, thank goodness. Well, we'll see about that. We'll see. Well, that was, uh, that was any other business arising from last week's episode. Any other business? You sound like a sort of Labour Party <laughs> meeting. <laughs> very <laughs> professional. Yeah, I'm, I'm very professional when I want to be, despite outward appearances, despite mm. much evidence to the country. That was last it was week's a good
3: ex- episode, the Iceland episode, wasn't was it? I very
2: much enjoyed it, and uh, th- thank you again. I
3: saw people tweeting in Icelandic about it, actually.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it could be very easy for us to become big in Iceland. Yeah. This week, then. Yes. So this week we are talking about alcohol and our relationship with alcohol in this country. I think you say I've, I've got a personal interest in this because I'm an alcoholic. I've not had a drink for 18 years, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not Puritan about it. I think, you know, if people want to have a drink, have a good time, great. But there is a certain amount of cultural pressure that goes with it. There's massive um health concerns that go with the overconsumption of alcohol. And there's also what it does to to families, um, what it can do to relationships. And those are the things we're going to be looking at. We're going to be talking to a historian who has looked at the relationship between Britain and alcohol over hundreds of years. We're going to be talking um, to somebody from uh, an alcohol charity campaigning against alcohol harm and we're going to be talking to a colleague of Ed's, John Ashworth, who is the Shadow Secretary of State for Health, but he's also shared, and you may have seen a video of this a while ago, his own experience of how alcohol affected his family, but specifically his father, who was an alcoholic, and he spoke very moving about this and as a result of that actually cross-party change came um, yeah and so- to
3: be fair you know not just him about- um other mps caroline flint liam byrne i think the conservative george freeman have also done the same so that that's what we're talking about on this week's episode. Now, what's your reason to be cheerful? Because God knows we need them at the moment.
2: My reason to be cheerful is Sarah's been nominated for an award. Has she? Chortle is the big uh, comedy website, and she's been nominated for Best Newcomer. This is my wife, Sarah Barron. Um, but it needs public votes. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the campaign trail. When is the deadline?
3: Mm. I think I think there's a few weeks. So would you go to Chortle dot? Yeah, and
2: then the comedy something. awards are in. There's all these different categories. Right. Vote for Sarah yeah. Barrett. Yeah. She's really funny. Yes, I mean and I have just... to say, if if it was a choice between you campaigning to uh, get Ed to release a video of us in the hot spa, or vote for, so... for Sarah. Then choose Sarah Barrett, definitely. <laughs> Not sure that's No, the way she's I was honestly go. so funny. Yeah, as I so, said to you before. Yeah, if you if you're idling around online and you fancy casting a vote, yeah,
3: helps the family business. No, indeed. Uh, so so that's mine. What's yours? Um... I was going to say, she's the funny version of the Baron Lloyd duo, but that's <laughs> we mean. Uh, that's and I, true. And I wouldn't mean it. She, she's, she's, she's even funnier than you, and you're incredibly funny. Oh, come on. <laughs> uh, and handsome, and <laughs> suave, and sophisticated. What's uh, your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is I am now officially part of a WhatsApp group.
2: There is a new reasons, reasons to be, be cheerful,
3: cheerful admin WhatsApp group, yep. and you've been included in it this time. I know. I'm, I'm just going to say I'm really grateful. I've not been excluded. I, I am getting slightly fed up of all the messages. So you were just saying I, I think, think I'm going to leave. The I group. think <laughs> I'm thinking of but honestly, it's better to have been invited into the group and then choose to leave it than never to have been invited into the group. I'm not getting into this again. No, you? but I promise you, if it's if the next message is Ed Miliband's left the group, I'm not. I just want to put it on the record. I'm not going to say I was never invited, <laughs> as happened last time.
1: Listening to Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: We're going to talk now to Angela McShane, who is an early modern historian and head of research development at the Wellcome Collection. Uh, Angela, hello, and you specialize in the history of intoxicants in the UK.
1: Yes, um, I look particularly. I am interested in material culture of drinking, ritual drinking, and political drinking.
3: Political ah. drinking. Political. <laughs> do you Again, do much of that? Have you seen much that.
2: evidence of that? Dark Coke, really. <laughs> right. um, so I, I think of us as this quite drunken country and perhaps not with the healthiest attitude towards alcohol. That, how, how historically do we fit in with other Western European countries, for example?
1: Um, well, we're part of that the, the northern part of uh, Europe where we tend to use drink separately from food. So that encourages um, drunkenness, I guess, if you like, (laughs) Uh, because, you know, because you see drink as a separate part of social activity uh, and indeed, you know, the the things that you ingest. Um, Whereas in southern parts of Europe, and this actually works globally, you know, so you can look at north and south in that kind of way, uh, then that tends to be drink with food. So you're thinking of drink as something that is a, a food like uh, you know, like bread, like wine, like meat. Load.
2: So can you look at a country like France and see, OK, if you look at um, consumption per person in litres, right. theirs might be higher. But that's because they're always having a drink with food. Whereas with us, it might be that we're saving until a Friday night and then we're yeah. going to you go know, nuts and really binge on it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, if you think about the and I know the 1940s and 50s, you know, the working man comes home, has his tea, drinks tea, drinks tea with his cooked tea and then goes out the pub to drink beer with his mates and talk and so on. Whereas in France your working man has come back from the factory or whatever he's done, the field and he sits down with his bottle of wine and his family and drinks his wine there. Maybe he goes out to a bar and then will drink liquor and that's kind of quite interesting. Our tendency, except for the latest rise of gin uh, and cocktails, um, our tendency is to think of wine and beer as the things that we'll mostly drink that's historically been mostly the case Um, whereas that whole range of much stronger liquors has been part of the practice elsewhere
2: and is it not the case that if you go back i don't know 150 or a couple of hundred years in history people were just like a a little bit drunk all the time like Ah. what they drank was sort (laughs) of weak beer yeah,
1: so small beer and uh, and and, and were, was everybody drunk all the time? That's a, that's a very common question that's asked of drink historians. <laughs> well, that, that's what I, that's what my
2: <laughs> perception is that like, people weren't drinking water in the way that yeah. we do now. They were just drinking weak beer all the time.
1: Well, the first thing is, I think we should we should myth bust here. Okay, people drank water. People didn't have the money to pay for you know beer all the time and things like that, but beer was seen as a basic nutrient. Uh, part of your basic diet. So, I mean, in in Britain, for example, certainly in England, the poor had the right to buy a quart—that's so two pints—of uh, beer or ale, beer, um, for a penny. So, you, so every alehouse licensed person had to offer that. Um, to the poor interestingly in some cases you see some court cases where um, the poor are allowed to buy that but they're if they're a bit disreputable looking they, they're forced to have it outside right. uh, bearing in mind it's not hot but anyway so that that is a kind of right because it's a fundamental nutrient way of getting nutrients Amazing. yeah so wine is much higher end it's imported because we give up making wine quite early on um and that's seen on one hand as a kind of as a something that you put often in medicines um and then from the late 16th century is increasingly seen as a as a drink for the better off to have as part of conviviality sociality so the real development of the fear about drunkenness being purveying all of society, um, certainly from the period I'm interested in, which is from about the late 16th century onwards, that really comes in as people are starting to use drink as a sociable, um, you know, uh, something to use for in sociable situations.
2: And is that a moral issue? Is that coming from the church? Or I've got it in my head that the Industrial Revolution was a a thing that, a bit later than that, was (laughs) was a thing that sort of changed the way that they regulate and think about drink because they didn't want sort of drunk people operating the looms and machinery yeah. the whole time
1: right well the business of government go, you know governmental authorities because this could be you know magistrates churches it could be states has constantly wanted to police the drinking of the poor and the working people and women so these are the, these are the groups that, are, that, we, that everybody worries about all the time not for their health particularly but because they're all seen as potentially disruptive to society so we can say in the in the 16th century or actually uh, the first act to try and reduce the amount of time you can drink is in 1604 james the 1st brings in this uh, act that you mustn't tipple and you're tippling if you stay in an alehouse for longer than I think it's an hour um, and so you can only <laughs> so so it's the first kind of yeah legislation to do with drinking hours if you like so yes if you're you've got your modern head on and you're thinking oh yes this comes in as well to prevent particularly during the wars actually to prevent workers being drunk when they go back to factories and things like this this happens a long time before right. that and, and anxieties, particularly about women and how they're drinking, is always seen as a kind of moral gauge for society. So if, if women are lying in the streets of Nottingham drunk, um, then this means that all of society has fallen apart and we need to completely change everything. Because it's and like that, how
2: they treated the Ladettes in the 90s. Well, that
1: is the Ladettes. That's where that story comes from. Because the Ladettes emerges from a point in history, in the 80s, I'm just writing about this, You know, those of us who are my age, a little older than 40, um, we remember when... Borderline
3: millennial, we call it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: We remember a time when a woman couldn't go into a pub and order a pint. You would be given two halves if you were insisting on a pint of beer. So you don't remember that, but I remember that. And I was brought up in a pub and you, you know, so women couldn't be given a pint of beer. Now, that kind of seems to commence, I don't know, from somewhere around the 50s or 60s, because they're drinking, you know, they can order a quart of beer, um, you know, right through the whole early modern period and so on. But they tend to share it with people. People don't actually drink that much. I mean, looking into that, the maximum on a big night out that a woman might drink is half a bottle of wine.
3: For a wet when?
1: In the 17th century, right, and then then you know the gin craze comes along. You know what what is what is the picture that Hogarth, uh, irritating man, uh, produces uh, to show what it you know the complete society's fallen apart because of gin. He actually shows you women drinking too much, a woman dropping her baby because she's drunk, and so on. Actually, that woman isn't drinking gin; she's holding a snuff box. People don't ever notice that. <laughs> She's not drinking gin. She's taking snuff. She's being luxurious. She's luxuriating in leisure time, in you know, intoxicating behaviours and isn't doing what the working class should do, which is to blooming well work. Right. Or have leisure.
3: So there's a big for you, there's a big class aspect in this oh, sort of huge. moral anxiety about yes. drinking.
1: Well, when looking in if you want to go through all the newspapers, how many times do you get the big headline, middle classes drunk at home? You know, doctors drink too much uh, at a party. <laughs> you don't. You get girls drunk on the street. You know, young people uh, drinking too yeah. much. That's what you get. And you get this little snapshot, which is supposed to be speaking for all. And yet we know that young people drink less than they ever did. Alcohol. What anyway. now? Yeah. They drink less than they ever did. That's been on the decline for quite a so while. So are you
3: more relaxed as a historian about britain's relationship or british people's relationship with alcohol what 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 does it how does it change your perspective on the current on the present day
1: well i mean i see so i'm particularly interested in political drinking i said that before And what I see, I'm particularly interested in ritual drinking that really kicks off during the Civil War. So we think we're divided over Brexit. Welcome to the 17th century. Um, You know, and in that at that time, those who supported the crown, the loser for quite a long time, they would they would have all these health drinking uh, rituals. Okay, and these were actively banned by the Puritan uh, state So when the monarchy comes back in in 1660, they all decide that was a terrible idea, and so they're going to have the monarchy back after all, so they come back in 1660. Drinking healths to the crown becomes embedded in all the great pillars of state, and it's still the case. This is the point uh, that I would highlight. So it is still the case in universities, still the case in the legal profession, still the case in politics, still the case in health. Anywhere where you have major authorities, they will pledge their allegiance to the crown, the state through drinking alcohol. Now, it's easier now to not do it, but there was a time in the 19th century where if a soldier had refused to drink uh, health in alcohol, you know, he could have been cashiered. So it's embedded in our whole society. And so it's, it's not just a historic thing. It's, it's actually there all the time. Well, to untangle all that, that's pretty hard to do.
2: Can I ask you about the British relationship with not drinking?
1: Ah, yes. So I'm
2: an alcoholic, I've not had a drink for 18 years And if I, if, if if people offer me a drink and I say I'm an alcoholic People are respectful of that yeah. However, when I was drinking or I've seen it around other people If if somebody says to them, oh, I don't fancy it tonight Or I'm having a week off yeah. or I'm not drinking tonight People cannot handle it no. You know, They're respectful of somebody who's got themselves into such a state They can never touch alcohol again But it seems to me as a country we've got this real yeah. suspicion Of people who oh, just, just don't want to drink, I don't like it Yeah
1: yeah and i would so i've argued that that also emerges out of the same history that i'm talking about so there's this fantastic um song actually uh from the 17th century and it kind of refers to uh, well there's a whole bunch of songs that are attacking people that don't drink because if they don't drink it means they're puritans they're anti the crown they're anti uh they're anti the good fellow they're anti What's society the oh there's a whole bunch of them mm. uh, there's a What's lot your of them so there's one that says, uh, "He that drinks uh, with good reason is loyal and something around that." It's a right. long title. These are not snappy songs. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's the delights of the bottle. There's like a whole right. bunch of them. Right. So <laughs> I can give you a reference right. later. No it's fine. <laughs> but um, oh, I'm going we to can make a Spotify playlist. At. Yeah, exactly. So so there was actually this kind of whole concept of seditious sobriety. That so the sober person is is actually seditious, and I don't think that goes away. So when I I give sort of like talks, and I'm dealing especially with the public. I always always ask them, if you're out and somebody says they don't want to drink, how do you feel? And that's exactly what they always say. Mm, well, that's all. There. There's, a, there's only got to be two reasons: they're on antibiotics or else they're an alcoholic.
3: We have this thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is Jeff as the benign ruler. Um, he's obviously got a particular sort of perspective on the issue of drinking but what what would you be if you if you were his minister for alcohol yes what would you be what would you be telling him he should be doing well
1: i would be minister for intoxicants firstly can we change that and secondly i i think that The regulation of the standards of the things that we ingest in our body and kind of the the amounts that you can buy that is sensible and then education around all those things, these are the most powerful things to help people to manage intoxicants but also sugar, unbelievably bad for most people's health. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we don't manage very well. So I would say regulate everything, regulate everything, ban nothing. We all learned in Prohibition... Banning things doesn't work. There are people, you know. We've got alcoholism in my family as well. I get, I got brought up in a. I kind of have a bit of a sense of these things, probably. But, you know, there are people that will have problems with a whole range of things. Some people are allergic to nuts. Some people can't handle uh, alcohol. Some people can't manage other things. That is part of those individual people's health. But the fact is everybody won't get addicted to everything. And so what we need to do is to be adults about it. And I think that's what we see when we go to Southern Europe and other places where, incidentally, liver disease is very high. So they also need to think about how they're drinking. Um, you know, that we need to just be adult about it, understand where some of these things come from. Why do I feel like that when somebody asks me, tells me they're not going to drink? You know, let's understand it. That's what history's for, so that we can unpick some of those things and find alternatives that work well. So I think the other thing is about this options in a bar. You should walk into a bar and there's a whole range of mocktails, whole fantastic stuff of drinks with different tastes, and there's alcohol and there's coffee. There's all the different things that you can have. Let's stop drawing lines between this kind of behaviour and that kind of behaviour.
2: Great. You got the job. I look forward to a wide range of mocktails in the Jeffocracy.
3: (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. That's been great.
2: We're delighted to have with us now John Ashworth, who's MP for Leicester South and Shadow Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Hello, John. Hello. And, you know, a a longtime colleague of Ed's as well. (laughs) Yes, I mean, it's not particularly (laughs) scarred by
3: it. Uh, I, I don't think I'm scarred. You're more uh, scarred by Gordon than by me. Uh, well, we, we were I both think we were all in that category. We were both there with Gordon, weren't we? Yeah, and we then, were. And then
4: uh, well, yeah. I was campaigning hard for you. Uh, do you
3: still get two two o'clock in the morning emails?
4: I w- I spoke to Gordon last week. In fact, at two, two o'clock in the morning. I uh, wasn't at two o'clock in the- <laughs> <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. We we um. Uh, working in Gordon's team in the Treasury, you'd often you'd walk in, and this is the days before Blackberries and iPhones and so on. So, um, so you know, better days in that respect. Yeah. <laughs> so you'd, you'd walk into the office and you'd see you'd have sort of half a dozen emails from him, which he'd sent at sort of four a.m.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was also the days I was remembering the other day. Pages, pages right. were really awful. Actually, the pages are much <laughs> worse than mobile phones. but there's something about pages. Which was sort of, you know, it was the sort of New Labour attribute of choice in the 1990s, you know what I mean? Or not of choice, maybe. So it's
2: like being a doctor on call. It is like being a doctor a on call. But you're a wonk on call. <laughs> so we're here to talk about uh, alcohol today. And, and alcohol is something that you have uh, spoken about quite publicly from a personal um, perspective in, over the last couple of years. Can you tell, tell us a little bit more about that to start, start off?
4: Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm Labour's Shadow Health Secretary, um, as you know, and when I got given the job, uh, admittedly, in <laughs> you know, perhaps controversial or difficult circumstances, it coming after a, a bit of turbulence in the Labour Party, if I can put it like that, I, I, I thought that I wanted to use the job as a platform to speak out on some things that I cared about because it's, it's, it's not unusual for a Labour Shadow Health Secretary to be on the television complaining about the A&E crisis and complaining about people on trolleys and corridors and people waiting longer for an operation. And, and they are all legitimate complaints. That, that That is happening after eight or nine years of austerity in the NHS. Um, but I also thought I wanted to speak about some things which I, I think, which I cared about personally and which I think have been neglected in in society. And I chose um, to speak about my own circumstances with my dad, who, to be frank, was an alcoholic and you know, to not put, not put too fine a point on it, essentially drank himself to death. I'd never spoken about that before publicly. Really, my friends knew about it, but I just it, it just occurred to me, or I th- that there's a whole issue here which isn't really talked about in public. People see it as a bit of a taboo. People think alcohol and getting drunk and drinking. I'm not against people getting drunk and having a good time, but people just think it's a fun, it's a funny thing, it's hilarious, it's a hey, hail fellow, well met, all that kind of stuff. And my dad was a bit like that. You know, he was always drunk when I was growing up, you know. It's so, so daytime. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Oh, well, I was, yeah. I started drinking in the day. I remember being picked up from school once by him and he fell over. He was so drunk. My parents got divorced as a result. It was a broken home because my mum couldn't. Put up with it any longer, and you know, and who would blame her? I, you know, I remember going home and the, opened the fridge as a kid, and you know, um, and there'd be nothing in there other than bottles of cheap wine and cheap lager. It always sort of coloured my childhood and my upbringing. This can I ask how
2: different did it feel to the upbringing of of the kids around you? Were you aware
4: of it at the time? Well, I suppose that it's, 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 I I was aware that my dad was a heavy drinker, although I didn't really understand he was an alcoholic until i become more more grown up more of a, a teenager and then an adult like on all these things kids they don't know any different you sort of get on with it you don't you don't really appreciate how different it is and i think i for me it meant i um grew up very fast i mean i was an only child so then a lot of the times when i was drunk and um, it was a bit like at the weekends when I was with him, I was almost 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 caring for him. But it, it it, got the thing that is, I think, most difficult for me. And this is what I spoke about this in Parliament. It was a debate on alcohol. And I went in with a sort of, you know, written out speech with all the facts and figures on alcohol. And I actually sort of threw it aside and decided just to tell my story instead. Um, and the sort of bit that went viral in this day and age of social media was the bit when I spoke about my wedding when I was a grown up and see my dad decided one day that he was going to go off. He's had enough of this country and he went off to Thailand. I was like, what are you talking about? This is ridiculous. It was a ludicrous thing. anyway but he just went, he literally just went. And then 18 months, two years later, I was getting married and my dad couldn't come to the wedding. And the reason he couldn't come to the wedding uh, is because he was, from, he was very working class. He was from Salford. He was a croupier in a casino. You know, so we're from a working class background. I'm from a working class background. And he felt that if he came to the wedding, he would embarrass me or shame me. Because in his eyes, I now mixed with posh people. Gordon Brown was at the wedding. Other politicians were at the wedding. You know, people who work in our political world were at the wedding. And he felt that his drinking, and if he was there, it would be shaming, shameful and embarrassing for me. And so the day before the wedding, he told me he wasn't coming. And of he wouldn't shame me. He was my dad. It was my dad. Mm-hmm. I loved him. and uh, But I was also angry with him. He didn't tell you that was the reason? I, I, I found, he just said he wasn't coming. Yeah. I was so angry with him um you know we had the, you know even the place you know the name the placemats on the you know for the table setting and all that had his name on it and there was a place at a table where he was supposed to sit and all that kind of stuff i was so angry with him but i knew it was sort of drink related and then uh two well, about two, just two or three months later he was dead uh and i, <laughs> I got a phone call um and this is, a, you go through such a weird rollercoaster of emotions. I got a phone call at 6am in the morning and it was a Thai number on the phone. and I thought, oh my God, he's drunk again. We want to be sort of telling me the same old stories he tells. And I can't, and, and I can't, I can't be bothered answering it. It was actually the Friday, I remember it, so it was the Friday before we were going to the Labour conference where you were elected leader. Right. <laughs> um, and anyway, uh, I, I listened to the voicemail and it wasn't my dad, it was somebody else saying, please can you ring, it's urgent. Of course, I, I my, uh, this weird, the, the weird. You have a weird premonition in my heart. I knew something like this was happening, and they rang, and he, he was dead. Uh, and he was sixty. And then they said to me, and I sort of said, hardly able to get the words out. I said, "Is it? Was it drink related?" And this person, not meaning to be casual, but just in the circumstances, it probably came across a bit casual. Just said, "You do know he was an alcoholic." And of course I knew, yeah. <laughs> but to hear, actually hear somebody mm. say it out loud to me, it sort of was like being hit for six. So um, it, it's kind of heartbra- well, it is heartbreaking, but it's kind of galvanized me to speak out on it and do something about it. And I... And there's a charity I'm I'm associated with. And I've now run two London marathons for this charity. I'm going to run the London Marathon again for a charity called NACOA, National Association of Children Alcoholics. Um, But I just thought now I've got this role as somebody who could be the health secretary. And and goodness knows politics is so crazy at the moment. I mean, could be health secretary by the end of the podcast for all I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, given, Given what's going on in politics, I thought this is an agenda that I want to push yeah, you know, and, and do something. about And
3: by it. conservative estimates, there are two hundred thousand kids who are growing up in Britain with parents who are yeah. alcoholics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the. the, the, the,
4: the I mean some some of the uh, sector groups say it could be as many as two million. Uh, others, like P- Public Health England, say it's two hundred thousand. And many of those. I mean, I was lucky. He was a nice man, my dad, a loving man. He taught me a lot. He's where I get my socialist Labour beliefs from. You know, he would sit me in front, of, in front of the television as a child and say, that's Michael Foote, we vote for him. That's Neil Kinnick, we vote for him. Things like that. So, so he was a Labour man. So I, I was very, very, very lucky in that respect. But there would be children today who, when they leave or when they left for school this morning, don't know what they're coming home to when they get home from school and some of those parents with drink problems will also have drug problems and some of those parents with drink problems will abuse their children violently or sexually um and those children won't necessarily know where to turn to where to get help you know because the system sort of doesn't really at the moment help them as much as it could do and that's that's the sort of argument what could
3: what could the system be doing what, what's the what's the sort of ch- I mean I guess there's lots of changes but what are the changes that
4: well, I mean, one of the things we've had a victory on, and there's a few of us in Parliament who've been campaigning on this, Liam Byrne, Caroline Flynn, um, we actually persuaded the Tory government to put some money into setting up a phone line. Uh, we actually persuaded the Tory government to put some money into a fund that local councils could bid for so they could put in place local support strategies. I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I remember a pretty robust, um, tough um, political uh, fighter Um, You know, across the dispatch box and so on. But Jeremy Hunt, the previous health secretary, in fairness to him, was so moved by my speech, he actually rang me up and said, look, I want to do something. And then he announced, said he'll put some money into a fund. And then he actually said, well, do you want to announce it jointly? with me, we actually did a joint announcement with him. I don't know if any other member Jeremy Corbyn should have come yeah, yeah. Has done that. And it was a very awkward sort of TV interview of us both together where because I'm quite short and he's quite tall <laughs> and we're stood next to each other. It looked, we sort of looked like the kind of, you know, that sort of John Cleese to Ronnie sketch. I look down on him and he it's a bit like that. And, and it's so, cause he's so tall and I'm so short. If you, I noticed or someone told me that if you, when you like go to Google me, and Google predicts what the next word might be based on the amount of people searching. Well, the next word when you go to Google, Jonathan Ashworth, is height. So all these people look, <laughs> <laughs> find out how short I was. But anyway, so we've made some progress. We've made some progress, but there's much more you can do. You know, we need to put proper support into schools. We need to put proper mental health support in for children in schools. But it's also- what does that What
2: does that support look like? Is it teachers looking out for
4: signs? Yeah, yeah, I, that 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 kind that kind of thing. But we but. Here's, here's the crucial thing. This is where I do get slightly more political um, and sort of break the nice consensus that we've managed to develop. But the alcohol service, treatment services in this country have been decimated. 162 million pounds worth of cuts from drug and alcohol services. And you've now got a situation where people in need, people with a real alcohol problem, is at that some of the highest levels it's been for some time, over 600,000 people, in need of some support, and the numbers actually getting any help have plummeted. And you've got like a million people being admitted to hospital for um, alcohol problems. You've got alcohol deaths uh, uh, higher than you know at, at a particular highs. I've still got massive problems with drug misuse services. Mental health services have been cut back and are not. And you're seeing mental health hospital uh, providers, the hospitals and so on, closing their detox beds. Um, so yeah, you've got. All these problems in society, I think, uh, where where we're sort of not facing up to the huge damaging consequences of alcohol, and at the same time, government cutting back vital services, and actually, it's and because I would argue as a sort of as a left wing, you know, a Labour politician that the broader austerity agenda create when it creates poverty and deprivation and inequality, that's the breeding ground for further alcohol abuse. well so uh, so this intervention the government has made based on our sort of lobbying is welcome yes and it's and i'm very grateful and grace graceful in the way i've responded to it but more you've got to look at the broader picture
3: okay john thank you so much for joining us and sharing the story with us um and it's incredibly moving so thank you thank you for having me
1: reasons to be cheerful with ed milliband and jeff lloyd
2: All right, with us now is Richard Piper. Richard, you are Chief Executive of Alcohol Change UK, and you're also sort of very involved in Dry January, which, I mean, that, that seems to me this year, m- more than even recent years where I've heard about it, this year everybody was talking about it.
5: Yeah, we, we, it's one of those campaigns that, yes, it's about individual and your own choice and your own imp- empowerment, but it's also a campaign that absolutely starts a conversation and, and we have a national conversation about it. I mean, this year, the amount of criticism of Dry January was really high. Uh, when we love a bit of criticism. Every bit of criticism is another radio interview. And, and actually, most of the criticisms are misunderstood. But the campaign is really transformational. Um, it Essentially, uh, it's about long-term control. So the, 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 the theory of dry January really is if you were to ask someone to kind of control their drinking for the longer term, and many people want to control their drinking for the longer term, they, they know they've got a little bit out of hand. It's got, you know, we, every weeknight or they're associating it with every time they want to relax, they're f- finding themselves thinking about where their next drink's coming from. For people who want, you know, to make that change, how do you make that change? And, you know, the dominant discourse has always been well, education, like right? give people knowledge. It just doesn't work. You know, we know that people don't change their behaviours because of knowledge. They beha- they change it experientially. So dry January is an experiential uh, one month. Kick the booze for that month. Give it a go. Treat it like a training camp. Treat it like a boot camp for you. Treat it like an experiment. If at the end of week one you've got the shakes, <laughs> go and get yourself to NE. If after week one you go, oh, I really need another drink you've really learned something powerful. And if it had to say one day, you go, that was easy. Okay, cool. You probably were the wrong person for this campaign. It's really aimed at those heavier drinkers who, who, Want to get control um, over the longer term. So I would, It Kind of we, gets we,
2: people to take stock, and also by giving it a time frame as well, it, it, it makes you go through the practical experiment of b- testing your own relationship with drink. Because that's that, a really good way to put it. Yeah. Re- I think that's an interesting phrase: "relationship with drinks." So when people think of alcoholism, that feels sort of like such a down and out, rock bottom state that people don't necessarily identify with. But it's, it's sort of about how functional or good. Your, alcohol, your relationship with alcohol feels to you when you take stock of
5: it. I think that's exactly right. I and mean, the word alcoholic, uh, in fact, the phrase Alcoholics Anonymous, for all the great, great, amazing work that Alcoholics Anonymous do, that phrase is so much part of the public imagination. When you think of drink problems, you think Alcoholics and you think Anonymous, right? So Anonymous, confidentiality, shame. shame gotta yeah. be, there's got to be something there. And also this phrase Alcoholic, I mean, it's very, very dominant in the US. Um, it, you know, it, it appears in the... Uh, diagnostic manuals, etc. But in the UK and Europe, it's really problematized concept. Is there such a thing as an alcoholic? What what is it? What defines it? Is it physical dependency? Is it psychological dependency? And actually, it's, it's a really unhelpful term. Many people who want to get more control of their drinking absolutely would run terrified of the phrase uh, or the term alcoholic. Uh, and we think it's it's, it's just not brilliant term so um, i i use it to shut conversation down so i was saying to angela before
2: back when i did used to drink and maybe i try and have a week off i'd say to people i'm having a week off or i don't feel like one tonight and people are like go on go on what's wrong with you or they'd be suspicious of people who just didn't want to have a drink whereas if i say oh actually i'm an alcoholic i've not had a drink in 18 years people oh, I better respect that then you, you don't mess with that is but that that sort of ties into the next thing we wanted to talk about i guess which is just the whole relationship with alcohol in this country and how we view it and just how much of a, a social norm or how equated with fun or giving yourself a treat or relaxation uh, that booze actually is so, so
5: i mean i think it's absolutely no secret that, 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 that you know the i suppose mainstream british society treats alcohol as the norm um, for, for And it applies to so many things, you know, not feeling good, feeling good, uh, relaxing, trying to get up, trying to get down, trying to um, go out, not going out, drinking at home, drinking with friends, drinking alone, drink, basically any opportunity. And of course, the alcohol industry absolutely plays a role in that. It has explicit marketing techniques, which it calls pretty anytime drinking. So any occasion is an occasion for drinking. And although no individual company potentially owns that concept collectively the alcohol industry markets that concept um some explicitly some implicitly um but it's naive i think to just absolutely blame the alcohol industry they're marketing into a culture that's already kind of uh, very warm to that message Uh, how much of a problem is it for the country okay so it's it's a big problem um so since 1970s this is my lifetime um i was born in 1971 but i'm I'm not splitting hairs. I can't do the math. <laughs> but 50 years, uh, let's say uh, we've got a 400% increase in liver disease. It's the only, it's the only major health conditions that's going up everything else is going down heart conditions are, are reducing right. uh, strokes are reducing cancers are reducing liver disease absolutely through the roof and we're one of the few countries in europe for which that's the case many countries in europe have got control of this but we we absolutely haven't and we arguably we've been walking a generation or two into this crisis um, and it's not we're not talking here about 10 or 15 20 30 year olds we're talking about the 50- and 60-year-olds, um, particularly the baby boomer generation, for whom alcohol was absolutely central to their uh, identity. And I think identity is the heart of this issue. We, don't, we talk about culture. What we're often talking about is a collection of identities. <laughs> um, and I think those are people who, who've had relationships with alcohol that haven't been healthy, uh, I think pretty much everyone would be able to identify, and I speak personally, this, I still saw myself as, I'm a drinker. And I couldn't perceive myself as anything but a drinker. The idea of not being a drinker, the idea of being sober, crazy concept. What what a weird idea. So are you completely sober? I'm not completely sober, no. And um, uh, I I see myself, I call myself alcohol free. And what I mean by that is that I'm free from the trap that says I have to drink. Uh, And I have to drink because I have to drink because of this. I have to drink because of that. I I drink when I want to drink. I actually drink pretty rarely now. Uh, And when I do, I drink moderately i don't like that phrase i I don't i drink fairly sensibly we've heard from angela we've heard from john both from the historical perspective
3: and the sort of personal perspective you've told us the scale of the problem What, what what's the kind of range of solutions that you'd be pointing to as the big as the big things
5: i've hinted there i think about about personal empowerment and i think it's so easy right to just say like, all all solutions to all problems that rest with the government, and I i, I fundamentally, I spent you know twenty five thirty years in the charity sector. I fundamentally believe in the power of people to solve their problems as well, both individually and collectively. Collectively, everybody could just decide to stop sober shaming. Sober shaming is a phrase yeah. we use for encouraging other people to yeah. drink, and you'll have experienced that. I mean, everybody, everyone listening to this podcast, I think, will have experienced. Yeah. Um, been encouraged to drink I probably an awful lot of people will have been encouraging other people to drink and I absolutely own up to being someone who I thought people not drinking was an affront you're to a sober shamer yeah, yeah. I was a, a sober shamer I'm like an ex-sober <laughs> it's like it's, i
2: I've thought wonder if that's something that holds up to a, a mirror to people when they say that
5: but also it's acceptable to go oh I don't trust someone who doesn't drink hmm. I mean it's yeah, yeah. My 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 mum used to work for this um, guy who said he didn't trust men with beards. It was, uh, I, was, well, I, was right, right I was about, about nineteen. Totally to right on. <laughs> I, I <could> totally agree. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ed. You're yeah. wrong. Uh, but um, everybody can make that individual change. Just I mean, today we, we could shift British culture today by people just going, "You know what? I'm never going to do that again." it's actually not that hard. Once you spot it and learn to see it in yourself, you can spot it and to call it out in other people. But also, I think those people have got drinking problems. You know, it's fascinating that we shame people who don't drink. We also shame people who overdrink. There's this weird sweet spot in the middle (laughs) that we're allowed to do. But let me also talk about policy and government, because I think there are solutions that can happen there. Scotland has introduced minimum unit pricing. Uh, Wales has also introduced minimum unit pricing. It's so not a silver bullet, but it does. uh, And that basically
3: uh, means that you can't charge less than a certain amount for alcohol, so it's particularly targeted uh,
5: supermarkets and so on, yes? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, um, it's hardly going to, it would have no effect pretty much on any pub um, because the prices that people, we, we buy stuff in pubs is already way beyond that price. We're talking about the strongest cheapest drink and it is better if people are drinking in pubs and so on rather than at home or on... to be honest that feels a bit judgy right <laughs> we we'd say we're right. so as an organization not into kind right. of telling people what to do or not what to do but anyway but we stopping love pubs. it being stopping we bargain basement we certainly booze love
3: from supermarkets would help
5: um i i think the key is is because is it, it's minimum unit pricing it's based on the unit of the drink yeah. so therefore it's target it's a target yeah. measured based on the strength and the strongest cheapest drinks we're talking uh, the £10 litre bottle of vodka. Uh, we're talking about the yeah. white ciders, uh, which contain the same amount of units, right. actually, as uh, three and a half litres, right. uh, as that bottle of vodka, but for 3 pounds 17 right. We're talking pocket money prices. And these are the, these are the drinks that young people who, who are particularly those, and there's a big health inequalities issue here, by the way, younger people from certain communities and those who are just experiencing serious drinking problems they're the drinks these guys choose they're incredibly price sensitive they absolutely know what they're buying per pence per unit uh, and, and lifting the f- floor price of just those So drinks, the floor price rather than the tax. It's not a tax. It's yeah. just the floor price. In fact, I mean, one of the arguments against MUP is that the, the increased uh, sales revenue goes, goes, to, to, the goes to the companies. Although in, in reality, we expect the, ma- the main approach to it would be what's called reformulation, where people just put less units yeah. in the drink, which is actually good. The aim of MUP, really, is to give more people longer life because the more serious stuff you drink and the more strong stuff you're drinking, if you've got a um, an alcohol problem a higher risk. And you buy buy it, basically. We think it's... A contribution. uh, We think it's a contribution. Uh, It it should absolutely be introduced in England, but it's not the only solution. Um, And and if for whatever reason it was deemed politically unacceptable by by any political party, we think there are other similar measures you could introduce. What would they be? So, for example, there is a graph that shows um, the taxation and and, uh, duty rates of all the different drinks, and it's the most crazy graph you could imagine it's it's like letting your three year old draw a graph. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's the most crazy arcane system that's been built up since about twelve fourteen. So it should be it should be proportional to <laughs> a, a simplified uh, sensible tax yeah. system based on the strength of drink um, would, would 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 be an alternative approach to minimum unit pricing. I think minimum unit pricing is probably more targeted, but you know uh, there's politics here. And I think we're in the business of, of finding solutions that work. We're not we're not absolutely. And what, what about busy. advertising? So I think uh, alcohol marketing, uh, many people are shocked that we we have independent regulators for the pricing of water. We don't have independent regulation of alcohol marketing who regulates alcohol marketing you guessed it the alcohol industry so you want what independent regulation we would argue strongly for a degree of independent accountability yeah. it doesn't mean it couldn't be through the portman group but, but there needs to be an independent board there or there needs to be a, an appointment that's accountable essentially to us as citizens i mean it's absolutely crazy but my daughter's 13 and 16 year olds i have give them a little experiment which is to show me alcohol advertising that they're getting through instagram it is i'm sorry it's shocking So my 13-year-old is endlessly being marketed to. I was talking to her the other day about Captain Birdseye. You know Captain Birdseye? She hadn't heard of Captain Birdseye. She's heard of Captain Morgan. She's not heard of Captain Birdseye. Okay, what's going on? So I think we as a society should just take control, absolutely, as citizens of alcohol marketing and say, we want alcohol marketing to be done in a a sensible, fair way that doesn't push. This, This is a drug, the most harmful drug on the planet it's a toxin it's a drug it's addictive we want that to be marketed uh in, in a way that's, that's sensible and fair i think it actually would be one of our our key 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 calls uh,
2: we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy where I am supreme benign leader, very hands-off, will leave my various departmental heads and ministers to, to their uh, own uh, devices. So if I make you minister for public health, specifically around alcohol harm,
5: what is the first thing you do on day one? Okay, day one, we'd uh, fund alcohol treatment properly. Uh we could do that uh you could even do that just by putting up alcohol duty by the rate of inflation. So the freeze in it, i.e. the real terms cut in it, is enough to 100 million quid, we're talking, uh, to, to pay for at least half of it. Uh, put that up to 2% and you've covered so it. So there's a drop in the ocean, It's actually. a drop in the ocean. It's the, one of the most effective interventions you can make as a health intervention because, it, because we're talking about kids who are living with parents who end up, if they're not careful, with abusive relationships. We're talking about domestic violence. We're talking about household fires. People don't think about household fires. We all think about household fire. It's a cigarette, right? A lot of people smoke and don't have a fire. Why do they have a fire? Because they fall asleep because they had too much to drink. Fall asleep on the bed with a lit cigarette. So 70% of domestic fires, 60% of domestic violence. We're talking about a societal uh, wave, all of which can be prevented with, a, with effective alcohol treatment. People do not wear, know where to go. They try Alcoholics Anonymous, and for some people, it's an amazing experience. For other people, the whole spirituality bit is a massive turnoff. People think, okay, it's rehab, right? That's an expensive thing that aunt or Deck go to. It, What is the system? The fact is that there's barely anything out there. And and at the moment, it's it's stuck with with, with drugs as well. So it's been collapsed with drugs. It recently has been taken out of the NHS, put into local authorities, collapsed with drugs. Um, And many people who've got an alcohol problem wouldn't see themselves going anywhere near a service that's for for people with drugs. And we get consistent feedback that people find that service threatening. And And the ring fence that's currently been on that service, so it's a service that's been decimated and has a financial ring fence, that ring fence is about to come off. So those areas with lowest business rates those areas with the greatest health inequalities are those that are about to experience essentially destruction of alcohol treatment. So that would be absolutely the first thing I would do. Um, and probably that could be busy for at least half an hour, <laughs> to be honest, because you know, there's a lot of things I'd have to be signing to, to make that happen. Because I'd have millions like you would have. Yes, yeah, so of course. You can be yeah, supreme, yeah. but I want to be you know, yeah. demi-supreme.
2: <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and just to finish by giving us a reason to be cheerful, we started off by talking about
5: Dry January. Can you just give us some of the numbers around the growth of of Dry January? It's been sure. extraordinarily so, popular. So it started, off, it started off with an amazing woman called Emily Robinson who was training for a marathon, thought I'm just going to kick drinking in January to kind of help me train. Uh, started a few years later, we're talking about 5,000 people. This year, 4.2 million. That's one in 10 drinking adults. That's extraordinary growth. Um, and and uh, it, the key to it, I suppose, as I said earlier, is this longer-term shift. Um, and, and I am super critical about it. You know, uh, my background is research, evaluation, impact assessment. So I just, like, I really don't want any programs going out in my charity that cannot demonstrate their effectiveness and aren't continually trying to improve. of people who do dry January, whether or not they complete it successfully in the dryness, they're just doing it, are drinking Mm -hmm. less six months later. Wow. So it's one of the most effective, because they've suddenly got this, and that's not just by having 31 days dry, that's people who sign up, who do the official campaign, who get the support. I am absolutely privileged to be able to observe and be part of, um, as as a participant as well, for myself, Uh, are closed Facebook groups, private Facebook groups for people who do dry January. I I could talk all day about the transformative stories. And I think probably if I was also uh, allowed to be a minister of whatever I was a minister of, one thing I would do, I'd be published one of those stories every day. I think that would give us all massive reasons to be cheerful. That is a reason to be cheerful. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.
3: What an interesting subject. It really is. You've thought about it a lot, I'm sure. I have, but
2: in, in a way, the thing that's made me think the most about our relationship with booze in this country isn't my own alcoholism. It's having an American wife move here and see the way British people are about alcohol and about how getting on an intercity train or an aeroplane is an excuse to go, well, hey, let's drink, even if it's sort of yeah. nine o'clock in, in the morning. Or And she's you know. quite shocked by that. Yeah, I mean, she's not a big drinker and she's not judgmental, but, I mean, it's not that she's shocked. She's like, but she is, oh, the stereotype about British people and drink is really is really true, isn't it? Yeah. And, and and In a way, I think you you almost feel like a killjoy pointing it out because it's something that's celebrated and it's a the word identity has come up a couple of times when we're talking to john it's it's a way that we define ourselves sometimes as as a country
3: it's seen as a national characteristic I tell you what I quite liked about all of the guests in a way is that you know they weren't in a sort of they weren't sort of preaching, you know no. what I mean? It's all...
2: And and, and I don't think anybody's talking it's about It's what Richard was anxiety, saying yeah. about
3: alcohol freedom, yes. you know, and the whole the thing freedom behind the pressure, January, yeah. giving proper treatment, sort of in a way helping people, because there's no point, you know, just saying we should educate people about liver disease is not going to do it. You've got to recognise the underlying causes and, and help people. And, and
2: set people free from the pressure to feel like every time they go out, they have to.
3: Do you still feel pressure to drink?
2: I don't feel pressure to drink. When I can feel the impulse to, but I don't. I don't feel. I think you know. As I was saying, I think it's easier to be me and to be able to say to people, "I've been sober for eighteen years. I got very messy all that alcohol." Than it is to be you going out with a certain type of friend to the pub and them saying, "How oh, do you want a drink, Ed?" And you say, "I'm just having a diet coke." And do, would you? You couldn't have a drink? No, I mean, no, no. It, it would uh, escalate. It would end badly. It would, it would escalate. Yeah.
1: Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast. Or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to Be Cheerful Podcast.
3: Time for us to go now. I'm I'm going off to see my wife sworn in as a high court judge. I'm coming too. Yes, you are. Yes. Um you're a special guest. And and what were Have they told you about your role yet?
2: <laughs> um, does she have her? You're own... holding the Bible. Does she have a gavel?
3: Her own gavel. Yeah. Shit, I should have bought her one.
2: She's going to feel so foolish when she needs to bang the gavel and she's got nothing there to bang.
3: Yeah, no, yeah. I, th- I think they get probably get supplied with the gavel. Right, you could yeah. ask her. You could put your hand up when the Lord Chief Justice or whoever is doing the ceremony and say, <laughs> "Do you get your own gavel? There's not a bit in the ceremony. I, I can be like, oh, my God, it's my friend Jeff. <laughs> there's not a bit in the ceremony where they
2: go, if anyone here knows yeah. the reason why this woman should not lawfully become a high court judge, and I can say, yes, she's got no gavel. Yeah,
3: Ed <laughs> forgot to buy the gavel. <laughs> You've got to behave yourself I'm going to behave myself yeah, I'm sure you're going to be very yeah. well behaved You're a very good audience member as I know from Iceland
2: I am and also now that she is a High Court judge At some point that means she becomes a dame She does Ain't nothing like a dame Yeah Which means uh, you you will become a
3: Nothing You told me it was a Dan No I think that's some kind of ancient ye olde English thingy
2: Oh I would I would claim it anyway Really? Dan Ed Miliband Yeah I mean it just sounds like you changed your name to Dan Yeah but...
3: Mm, exactly. uh, but no, it's 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 very exciting. No, it is. I'm 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 hotfooting it over there. So
2: should we thank people? Yes. So uh, thanks to Angela McShane who was just fascinating on the history of alcohol in this country. To John Ashworth, Ed's colleague, who spoke very movingly about his father's relationship with alcohol, and to Richard Piper and all this stuff about Dry January and the and the way it's grown. is really. I mean,
3: it really is a reason to be cheerful. Absolutely. To Emma Caution, producer our podcast we have a new researcher who we are very very delighted with Joel Pierce. yes uh, Ed C did our music James, James Deacon, Deacon. did our I dance, dance. Yes. Gail Lofthouse recently ballroom dancing in Blackpool <laughs> uh, we've got a video to prove it oh, we've got it. a video to prove it is our announcer and Emily Power did our artwork and that's it for this episode he's been Captain Birdseye he's been Captain Morgan
2: these have been reasons to be cheerful